going to be going back to the book of John today. However, since we sang that first song, Faith is the Victory, I'd like you to turn to 1 John momentarily. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has read in the book of Revelation where it says, He that overcometh will get this or that or the other thing. And left wondering, well, how do you overcome? And how do you know if you're overcoming? <clears throat> I'm thinking you must have to live the victorious life or you're not going to get this or that. <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 5, it begins in verse 1. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Okay, we've talked about this over and over. This is how you're born again. You place your trust in Jesus' blood of the cross as being your Savior, <clears throat> says, and everyone who loves him that begot, the, the one who made you born again, <clears throat> loves also him that is begotten of him. So we're talking about loving one another. We drop down to verse 4. <clears throat> it says, whatsoever is born of God, and he's already said those that trust in Jesus are born of God. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. That means every single born-again believer overcomes the world. And a lot of people then would say, well, see, that's the test of whether you're really a believer or not, if you're overcoming the world. No, let's read on, see what it actually says. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is where that song comes from. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? How did you overcome the world? By choosing to place your faith in Jesus. He's the one who overcame the world, and only in him do we overcome the world. That's a positional thing. That's not a conditional thing. Okay. I know we're going to be short on time today because today's also Communion Sunday. Fortunately, Ann remembered that. Speaking of remembering, I was supposed to preach at Cornell this morning also, and I totally forgot, so how's that for dropping the ball? Sorry. They called me as we were driving here. One of the things we've skipped here in, in the Gospel of John, we didn't completely skip it, didn't intend to skip it at all, but it was just a matter of, first we're talking about Jesus. So we've talked about him for a couple of months, <clears throat> three months. Um, but there's an important passage here in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, that drops back and talks about John the Baptist. As I said, I wasn't like leaving him out on purpose or anything like that. That wasn't the idea. But those verses are all about John's message and how John saw this whole thing. John the Baptist, John the, the evangelist, John the, the apostle is the one who's writing this, but John the Baptist is the one speaking through here. I'd like to open up in prayer. Father in heaven, as we study your word, we understand that it's your Holy Spirit that feeds the flock, not me. And we ask that your mercy and your grace will be poured out on us as a flock, that we would look to you, not to the, the humans around us, not to the politics, not to the government, but that we would recognize that on you and you only do we depend, that you're the shepherd of the flock, that we struggle along to walk with you, and we read your word and try to feed on your word and we recognize this you that draws us along and leads us in safe pastures and leads us beside safe 
waters to drink and that as we turn to your word and as we depend on your Holy Spirit, we can feed on your word and we can drink deep of the living water. We ask that we'll be able to do that this morning in Jesus' name. I think it's an important thing to remember is it says he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. It's easy for me to forget and think that I've got this heavy responsibility or something, but the fact is God's in charge. So taken as a whole, when we start to, there's a lot about John the Baptist. Uh, It talks about him in all four Gospels. Uh, In Matthew, we see quite a bit. In Luke, we see the most because that tells about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. Not virgin birth like Jesus, but his mom and dad were quite elderly and had given up hope on having ever any kids. And the angel Gabriel talked to Elizabeth and Zechariah as well as he did to Mary and to Joseph six months later. Uh, so he had a miraculous birth as well. And we see in that chapter that uh, uniquely he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit from before he was born, from in the, in the womb. It says he was filled with, not just indwelt by, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, filled with means controlled by, under the control of. Uh, frequently in Scripture, it'll say, well, so-and-so is full of wine. In other words, he's under the influence of an intoxicant. We talk about people getting a DUII, driving under the influence of an intoxicant. Well, if you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is what's controlling your behavior. And what we want to see today is what does John the Baptist look like as someone who is controlled by the Holy Spirit? What's the central theme in his life as someone who was controlled by the Holy Spirit from before birth all the way through death? He's one of the few people we can look at to see that. So who is John the Baptist? Well, John the Apostle introduced him simply as a man sent from God whose name was John. So in John chapter 1, verse what, 4, I think, 5? Let me turn back. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the Apostle John's introduction of John the Baptist. He doesn't say there came this mighty prophet. It just says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We find out later that, yeah, he was a prophet, and that Jesus said he was the greatest. Amazing. I wouldn't have guessed that because you don't see him doing miracles. You don't see him calling down fire out of heaven or anything. <clears throat> But he's something special. Jesus says so. Okay, Luke gave the full background, talking about the miraculous inter- intervention by God regarding his birth and the fact that he's Jesus' cousin. I don't know exactly how these things work, second cousins or that kind of thing, but Mary was Elizabeth's much younger but first cousin, and John and Jesus were their two sons. So whatever kind of cousin that is. I think it's second cousin. But it might be first cousin once removed. I don't remember how that works. I think it's second cousin. But it concludes when it talks about John's upbringing. It says he was growing strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until the time when he was to be revealed to Israel. And one of the prophecies concerning this man in Luke chapter 1 verse 17 is that he would be going before God in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
So <clears throat> later on when Jesus said that, he wasn't like hedging because people were saying, well, is he Elijah or isn't he? At one point, Jesus said, well, if you can accept it, yeah, he is, in the sense that he stood for Elijah in front of Jesus. Elijah, in person, is coming in the first half of the, uh, right, at the right at the end of the first half of the Great Tribulation, and is going to live on earth again for a short time and be killed. Remember, Elijah is one of the two people in the Old Testament that didn't die, and he's going to die during the Tribulation. <clears throat> So we know he's coming, but this prophecy specifically said that John the Baptist would be in the spirit and power of Elijah, not that he was physically him. I had a guy challenge me on that and say, well, Jesus believed in, in reincarnation because he said John the Baptist is Elijah. Uh, I was a brand new Christian. I didn't know what to say. I, I was praying, and all of a sudden, God gave me the answer. I almost cracked up laughing because it was such a simple answer. And I, I looked at the man and said, doesn't a person have to die and be born in a new body to be reincarnated? He says, yeah. I said, Elijah never died. And he shut his mouth, and that was the end of the conversation. He recognized that does not qualify as reincarnation. <clears throat> so when he was revealed to Israel, he was eating a very strict diet. We see that he was eating locusts, which in, the, in our study in Leviticus and Wednesday nights, which you've missed if you haven't been there, uh, we found out that amongst their restricted diet, uh, grasshoppers and locusts and crickets were involved. Uh, they, were, they were included, whereas um, there's a lot of critters that we would eat very comfortably that they were not allowed to eat. Uh, we talked about that a good bit two Wednesdays ago. <laughs> Uh, last week I was sick, so Barak led the Bible study, and they studied in the book of Proverbs. I understand it went well. But John was eating grasshoppers and wild honey. He was dressed oddly as well. He was dressed in camel hair. Now, today we can buy a luxury suit made of camel hair. That's not what it was. This was a crude sackcloth-type garment. Camel hair was not considered a luxury item back then. Uh, wool was the standard it was much nicer than camel hair and he also had a crude leather belt one just says leather another says skin hide so evidently it was a crude hide belt uh, which could be called leather but it wasn't something nice <clears throat> but he came as a forerunner for Jesus the king a herald and he announced the coming messianic kingdom reiterating the holiness and righteousness and judgment of God. He was announcing the coming kingdom. That's what Israel had been waiting for for thousands of years. And that's what he was announcing. And they were glad to hear it. And people were coming to him and being baptized to be identified with his message. They were, they were confessing their sins publicly and repenting of their sins and wanting to be in the kingdom that he was announcing. So when Jesus came to him to be baptized, he didn't have any sins to commit, to, to confess. He was identifying himself with that message because he was the king. He needed to be identified with that message. And by the way, Jesus also preached the gospel of the kingdom for the first half of his ministry, up until Matthew 12, where he was accused of 
doing miracles in the power of Satan by the leaders in Jerusalem. Up until that time, he was offering the kingdom. After that, he no longer offered the kingdom. He was headed for the cross. Kingdom's still coming, but it's coming after the end of the church age now. It was offered then. God knew they were going to reject him. The church age, God, it was no surprise to God. He knew what he was going to do. Ephesians chapter 3, we find out his plan before he created the world. Okay, that's interesting. He made a legitimate offer knowing that they were going to reject it. That has a lot to do with the gospel that we preach also. We make a legitimate offer knowing that most people will reject it, but we still make the offer. <clears throat> so he came as a forerunner and he was bringing an exciting message, but like many thrilling, exciting messages, convicting messages, the people flocking to the messenger, John, were joined by others who didn't really believe, but they wanted to be part of the movement. So people were coming and being baptized that really shouldn't have been there. They didn't believe the message. They didn't believe the messenger. They wanted to be part of this popular movement. <clears throat> Jesus, excuse me, John the Baptist recognized them, and he warned them. He says, you bring forth works that that match what you're talking about then. If you're coming to be baptized, uh, identifying yourself with the kingdom, then you better behave as the subjects of that kingdom. <clears throat> and he commented in Matthew chapter 3 that he himself would only baptize in water, but that the person who was coming behind him, the one whose forerunner he was, would be baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, a lot of people jump from that to Acts chapter 2 and think that the tongues, the cloven tongues that were like as of fire, in other words, they looked like fire, floating in the air and landing on the disciples, that that was the fire. No. John goes on to explain, uh, well, let me read it real quick. In <clears throat> Matthew chapter 3, where John talked about, John the Baptist talked about this, baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire, <clears throat> he says, he says, I indeed baptize, in verse 11 and 12, he says, uh, Matthew 3, 11 and 12, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. Another passage says, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, let alone carry his shoes for him. He says, he shall baptize you, plural, with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, this is a winnowing fan, where they, they create a breeze to blow away chaff. He will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What fire? Hellfire. He's not talking about the cloven tongues as of fire that were in Acts chapter 2. He's talking about the fact that some of these people were headed for hell. And he was warning them that the baptism of the king that's coming behind me is not messing around with water. You can't fake your way into this one. You're either going to be filled with his Holy Spirit and baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, or you're going to end up in the lake of fire. That's what the warning was that John the Baptist brought. <clears throat> so the believers would eventually be baptized with the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, and those who proved to be his enemies instead that had been faking it, they're going to be placed into the lake of fire eventually. <clears throat> 
So there wasn't any mistaking his intent. The people that heard it understood exactly what he was saying. <clears throat> it's only people today that try to make it into something else, and they're looking for the baptism of fire. No, you're not. The fire he's talking about here is Gehenna, eventually the lake of fire. <clears throat> we don't want to ignore the latter half of that passage. It only confuses things. So it'd be easy to see John as a real fire and brimstone preacher, and in, in a sense he was, because that's what he was warning these people about. <clears throat> Not everybody, it was specifically those people that were faking. They also gave some real sound teaching, all within the context of the coming messianic kingdom. Both he and Jesus preached the kingdom age that was to come, and the teaching they gave was kingdom age teaching. Once in a while, you'll look at what Jesus said, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, either one, and think, well, gee, that's kind of hard to square up with what the epistles teach. That's because one is pointing at the kingdom age and the other is pointing at church age. I'm not going to go into that right now, but this is an important idea. <clears throat> Both John and Jesus lived out their whole life under the law, under the Old Testament. <clears throat> the church was not in view. It wasn't revealed in its fullness until more than eight years after Jesus' ascension. He only mentions the idea twice, and the word is ecclesia, which just means the assembly, but in one of those, he says, I will build my church, future tense. That one, yeah, I would say is talking about the church, even though he doesn't give us any detail. The other one, he's saying, take it to the assembly, which could have been the synagogue just as easily. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't give us any church age teaching that didn't start until after the day of Pentecost <clears throat> it couldn't have started until after his death why we're going to take communion today he says this is the new covenant in my what in my blood at that point his blood was still flowing in his veins until his blood was shed poured out of the foot of the cross he could not be our messiah that's why the veil in the temple wasn't torn until his blood was shed, until he died. Okay? So the church age is not in view here. It's not revealed until much later. <clears throat> in fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, it flat out says that it was not revealed to any of the Old Testament prophets. Even though God planned it before the foundation of the earth, the church age is not what John was teaching about, nor was Jesus. <clears throat> So John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you don't count Jesus. He was the last, but I kind of think of him more as the Savior and the Messiah rather than the fact that he was also the greatest of all prophets. Uh, John was the last of the other prophets. Uh, so we see John as kind of a fire breather because of how he confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and again later as he confronted Herod, the Tetrarch, and ended up losing his head over that one but he also gave sound teaching he told the people he's very down to earth he told them to share with each other he says if you've got plenty and somebody else doesn't have any share you got two coats and they've only got they don't have one that's cold out give them one of yours share <clears throat> he gave sound teaching to people that were in authority uh, to the law enforcement the, the, it said soldiers, but they were the police of that day. They didn't have a separate police force. He so, said not for them not to abuse their authority, to be satisfied with their wages. 
and not to abuse their authority, not to threaten people. And to the tax collectors, the IRS of the day, he says, don't cheat people. Because what they were doing is they would tax people more than the law required, and they'd keep the extra. And that's kind of how they got their pay from the Romans, is to squeeze a little bit of extra out of people, and they paid the necessary amount, and they kept the extra. <clears throat> and Zacchaeus admitted that, that he'd been cheating people. <clears throat> so things haven't changed a whole lot since that day. People st still tend to want to mistrust law enforcement and mistrust the IRS. God says they're a necessary part of government and that we're to treat them with respect, but he also told them, don't abuse your authority. <clears throat> he didn't tell them to quit being soldiers. He says, be satisfied with your wages. <clears throat> One result of his sound teaching is that people began to jump to the conclusion that maybe he was the king because he was giving kingdom age teaching. <clears throat> They got excited about it. They thought maybe he was the king. It's really odd because he'd already told them, no, I'm not the king. He that comes after me is greater than I. Okay, then how would he be the king? Well, I don't know, but they, people are funny that way. They get odd ideas. You may have noticed that. <clears throat> I keep telling myself not to read the news, but I keep going back to, you know, see what's happening. Yes, people get some odd ideas. So when he said that he wasn't the king, he wasn't the Messiah, he wasn't the Christ, they thought, well, maybe he's Elijah then. And they asked him, and he said, no, I'm not. <clears throat> Elijah will be coming during the Great Tribulation. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah as both the prophet in uh, Luke chapter 1 said and Jesus said regarding him. Came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Elijah is Elijah, John is John. They're two separate people. And John made no special claims regarding himself. He didn't attract attention to himself. Why is that important? He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. What do we see about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16? If I flip over to John 16 real quick, you can if you want. John chapter 16. Uh, verses 13 through 15. He says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore said I, he shall take of mine and show it unto you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if I do what the Holy Spirit says to do, what am I going to do? Make me look good or make him look good? Make Jesus look good. That's what it's about. Point people to Jesus. If I'm trying to draw disciples after myself, then I'm in sin. See? Look what <clears throat> John did. He didn't claim anything for himself. He declared that he wasn't worthy to untie the sandals of the coming king, not, or, nor, to, nor to carry his shoes. <clears throat> He sought no glory for himself. And when he eventually rebuked Herod for taking his brother's wife, which he should have done, Herod shut him up in prison. Now, we can't be sure what Herod would have done. We know that Herod was sorry when he ended up having, kind of painting himself into a corner where he had to execute John. Maybe he'd have turned him loose later. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he was hoping to do. But 
he didn't intend to kill him. His his brother's wife, who he was now married to, tricked him into setting himself setting himself up where he had to go execute John. <clears throat> but while John was in prison, John himself began to wonder about the ministry of Jesus because he's in this dungeon and he doesn't know what's going on and he's beginning to wonder, well, was, was I even on the right track? Any of you ever have some wondering like that? Am I even on the right track? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I going where he wants me to go? Did I say what I was supposed to say? I sure do. And John was too. It's kind of comforting for me to know that, that John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from before birth, from the, from the moment of conception, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's another little hole in the armor of these people that think that an unborn child isn't a human. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. In fact, if you want something interesting, they say, oh, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Look up fetus in the dictionary. It means offspring. It's the Latin word for a baby. Yeah, it's a baby. I agree. If you want to say it in Latin, I agree with that too. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. You can imagine a one-cell thing, blob of tissue, fetus, filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what John was. Okay. But he's doubting. He's in prison. So he sent messengers, some of his disciples, to go ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah, or, or I got the wrong, are we waiting for somebody else? Was I saying the wrong guy? <clears throat> when the messengers came to Jesus, this is in Luke chapter 7. I'm not going to look it up right now, but it's in Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 23. By the way, any of you that are interested, all these scriptures are in my notes. If you look them up on the church website, anytime you're thinking, where did he get that? If you didn't catch it during the sermon, go back and look it up. You can download the whole thing, all the notes, from the website under recent sermon notes or something like that. I forget what it's called. I think that's what it is. Um, and you can, you can look them up study on your own. <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 23, is the story of John the Baptist sending messengers to Jesus to ask, are you really he that should come or do we wait for another? If I got the wrong guy. Jesus told him to hang around. And while they were there, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he preached the gospel to the poor and told them, go back and tell John what you saw, that the, the sick are healed, the lame are walking, the, the demons are cast out, and the, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Because he knew that that fulfillment of prophecy would more securely answer John's question than if he said, yep, that's me. Why? Because John understood that the fulfilled prophecy is the pedigree of God. And, and in Isaiah chapters 40 through 44 or someplace in there, God repeatedly says, I am he who tells the end from the beginning. This is how you know it's me. I'm telling you the end from the beginning. I wrote the whole story. I'm telling you what the last chapter says. You haven't read it yet. So he gave John fulfilled prophecy as a confirmation for his question. <clears throat> All right, as compared to Jesus, what was the nature of John's ministry? John's ministry did draw a lot of attention initially. 
just as it was intended to do. People were publicly confessing their sins, being baptized in repentance, choosing to believe his message. But when Jesus arrived and was baptized by John, John protested, saying, no, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, allow this to be for right now. We have to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because Jesus did have to be baptized to be identified with John's message. He was the king. John was completely humble. His ministry was designed to be eclipsed by Jesus' ministry. Speaking of eclipses, some of you may or may not have known we had a lunar eclipse a couple of nights ago. Of course, we in Oregon don't get to see it because we've got 1,000 feet of clouds and buckets of rain coming down, but apparently it was a real heavy lunar eclipse. They call it a blood moon and all that stuff that doesn't mean anything to me. John had a completely humble ministry, and his ministry was designed to be eclipsed or overshadowed by the ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> when he pointed out to Jesus, pointed out Jesus to the crowd, it was more more than six weeks after his baptism. Jesus had already been fasting in the wilderness. He came back and met him in a different place up close to Capernaum. <clears throat> and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say anything to connect himself to Jesus at that point. All he said is, that's the one. That's the Lamb of God. <clears throat> he didn't try to share the spotlight in any way. He simply turned the spotlight on Jesus and said, that's the Lamb of God. Pointed people to Jesus. And the next day after that, he had two of his own disciples with him and said, look, that's the Lamb of God. He's nudging them saying, do you want the real deal? That's him, not me, him. They responded by leaving John the Baptist and going to follow Jesus. We already studied about that. How many modern-day pastors would deliberately say, you know what, you ought to really get out of this church and go over and listen to so-and-so? Okay, that doesn't happen today. I'm not even going to do it. <laughs> One thing, I love having you guys here. I, I, this is the best church Ann and I have ever been in. We've been in a lot of bigger churches, but... Uh, I had a guy just a couple of weeks ago telling me there's, there's infighting in every church. I said, there's not in ours. He said, well, you haven't seen it yet. And I thought, well, buddy, I've been here for 20 years. There was some 20 years ago. There's not now and hasn't been for, I don't know, eight or 10 years. I love it. People are actually loving each other, fellowshipping with one another, taking care of one another. <clears throat> so he sent them to go follow Jesus. In this matter alone, we start to see what it means to be a man filled with the Spirit of God. Over in John chapter 16, we, we already read that John, the Holy Spirit does not speak of himself. He speaks to glorify Jesus. So John the Baptist, under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit, behaved just as the Holy Spirit behaves. He spoke to glorify Jesus, and he directed other people to him. Okay, Was there ever a conflict? No, there wasn't. There did come a time when Jesus' ministry began to overshadow John's ministry as planned. That was exactly what was supposed to happen. And John's protégés were offended for his sake. They're saying, well, you know, he's baptizing more people than you are. He says, good. Good. <clears throat> Although the scripture did point out that Jesus actually wasn't baptizing anybody. His disciples were doing it. I think that's kind of interesting because... Later on, we see that all believers get baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. 
I'm not sure if Jesus baptized anyone at all. It says that he wasn't doing it, his disciples were. <clears throat> However, let's turn to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. That's where we were in our study. <clears throat> I'm reading from the King James. It says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. We're going to see in... in uh, few verses down that Jesus wasn't the one doing the baptizing. <clears throat> uh, it says John also was baptizing at Eon, e Enon near to Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John was not yet cast into prison. And there arose a question between some of Jesus, some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he that was with you beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness Behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. And John answered, Oh, no. No, he didn't. <clears throat> John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said, I am not the Christ. I said, I am sent before him. He who has the bride, this is the first mention of the bride of Christ. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, best man, <clears throat> which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that comes from above is above all. He that is above the earth is earth. He that is of the earth is a. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that receives his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God. God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Okay. This is the central verse here where it says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the key to this whole passage. This is the key to John's ministry. It's the key to us understanding what does it look like for a person to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're living under the control of the Holy Spirit, you'll behave in the same way the Holy Spirit would behave, which means you glorify Jesus. You're not looking to, to get more of the limelight. You're not get, looking to, to always be the one that's right. You can, you can sit down. You can sit on your rights instead of standing on your rights, somebody said. Okay. <clears throat> Now remember, this is John the Baptist telling his own disciples the difference between himself and Jesus. Apparently some of them hadn't caught on yet. But verse 30 there, that's the key verse. He must increase, I must decrease. The less people see of me, the more people see of Jesus, the better my service will be. A few weeks ago we talked briefly about Ezekiel chapter 47 where it talks about this river of living water in the, in the kingdom age flowing out from under the temple that's in the kingdom <clears throat> flowing toward the Dead Sea and it says that every place this living water touches will bear life that instead of salt flats there's going to be gardens instead of 
the Dead Sea. It's going to be commercially fishable, and it says specifically it'll be the same kind of fish as are in the Mediterranean. <clears throat> Interesting passage. But one of the things we saw is that that by the time you get a mile and a half out from the, I think it was a mile and a half out from the, uh, from the temple, the water was too deep to wade and you had to swim. And a, a friend of mine years ago, the, the one I told you about from Hanging Dog Creek, North Carolina, uh, is the one that pointed out to me that when you're swimming, the only thing people can see is your head because your, your body is suspended in the water. You're being carried along by the water. You're no longer wading. If you're deep enough walking with God that people only see your head, which is Christ, that's where you want to be. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, that they only see Jesus in your life. I remember the first time I could confirm in my own heart that I love Jesus because I always felt like, oh, I want to, but I don't... I can't even envision him. I don't know what he's like. I don't I want to love you. I don't know what you're like. And, and I was reading that morning about Jesus manifesting himself through the believers, and it suddenly dawned on me that my best friend there in Bible school, young, he was another young man, he's a little older than me, but not much, Bob Malloy, was kind of my mentor. He took me under his wing and kept me out of trouble and basically kept me from getting kicked out of school because I was such a knothead. Uh, started teaching me to walk with the Lord. And it suddenly dawned on me that I could see Jesus in Bob Malloy and that I loved what I was seeing there and that for the first time I could definitely accurately say I love Jesus. Why? Because I saw him in Bob Malloy. That's what you want. You want people to see Jesus in you to the point that they can say I love Jesus because I saw him today. Saw him with my sister. Solomon, my brother, Solomon, my, my friends. <clears throat> John reflected the light of the Son of God for a short time. Some were attracted to him alone, not recognizing that he only reflected that light. I don't know if you're aware of what a comet actually is, a ball of ice and dust that's flinging its way through space. And as it comes through closer to us, it reflects the light of our sun. It also melts a little bit of the ice and get the streamer of dust behind it that's reflecting the light. And what we see is this big white thing hanging in the sky. It looks like somebody took a little white paintbrush and did like that in the sky. And it just hangs there. You don't get to see it flicker or move or anything. It's just there for a few days and then it's gone. It fades out and it's gone. Well, that's how John's ministry was, see? He came as a, as a firebrand. They could see his light, but they didn't realize that he was reflecting the light of the Son of God. He was only reflecting light. He was not the light. It specifically calls that out in John chapter 1. He was not the light. He came to bear witness of the light. The comet reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't have any light of its own. It's a cold, dark ball of ice hurtling through space. That's all it is. And dirt. There's dirt in it, too, apparently. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> It's easy to join a movement, to join a church, go to meetings, sing songs, and so forth. But there's, you can fool other people, but you can't fool God. The Pharisees and Sadducees came fooling people. John recognized them for who they were, called them on it. <clears throat> there's no counterfeits in the body of Christ. You're not fooling God. 
If you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, it's as simple as recognizing that his blood at, your, at the cross is your only hope. That's all it is. And from that point, yes, you're in the body of Christ. Nobody fools the Holy Spirit. He's God. He knows our hearts. Nobody fools God. And John called his disciples to bear witness, remembering, saying, remember, I said I'm not him. I'm not the Son of God. I'm not Christ. And then he said something really interesting, because this is the first mention of the bride. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. John was best man at the wedding, so to speak. <clears throat> he says, this, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. His greatest joy was to see the bride beginning to accumulate to the bridegroom. He didn't get to see very much of it, just enough to begin. And shortly after that, he was arrested and didn't even know if he was on the right track anymore. That should be our joy as well, is to see the bride accumulating to the bridegroom. John's testimony regarding Jesus was that Jesus came from heaven and that he, Jesus, testified of what he had seen and heard there. He said those who willingly receive the testimony of Jesus are setting their seal to the fact that God is true. They're making a public decision that God's telling the truth and anybody that says he's not is lying. So be it. That's where I have to stand. People can prove anything they want and I still have to stand on the truth that, that God is true. Because it somehow turns out that he's the one that's telling the truth and those that proved to me something otherwise were wrong. At least about him. They could be right about what they're talking about and still be wrong about him. He says, those who believe on the Son, place of trust in him, have, present tense, have everlasting life. It doesn't say they will someday if they hang on hard enough. It says they have everlasting life now. And if it doesn't last forever, then it wasn't everlasting, was it? The point is, there's people that will tell you, if you don't hang on hard enough, God will drop you. No, he won't. He's a whole lot better parent and a whole lot better shepherd than any of you or I are. He will not lose you. But it says to those who do not believe the Son, they do not have the life and will not see life, but rather the wrath of God abides on them. That's a pretty stern warning. And it's exactly what he had said from the beginning. John was completely consistent in his teaching, just like the Holy Spirit. He always pointed Jesus, people toward Jesus, and he always told them very plainly the results of belief and of unbelief. He never sugarcoated the truth. Now, we frequently try to persuade people by sweet words. Maybe sometimes that bears fruit, especially maybe with little children or people that are hurting real bad. But Jesus did not do that, nor did the apostles. Jesus was pretty gentle most of the time, not always. <clears throat> but he said very clearly that the way into eternal life was narrow and tight and that few would enter therein. And he went on to say that the way into eternal destruction was broad and easy and lots and lots of people would go there by choice. Now, that's what Jesus said about the gospel. I have heard, I, I knew a guy who told me, he was a preacher, and he told me personally, he says, I just always assume people are saved unless they give me reason to believe otherwise. Well, Jesus said most people aren't, that most people are actually headed for hell. Why would I assume that everybody's saved until they tell me otherwise. Isn't that kind of backwards? And there was a pastor quite recently here locally that was teaching 
Nobody was ever saved by finding out they were a sinner. Well, Jesus said nobody ever got saved without finding out they were a sinner. What is it you're being saved from? If you're not a sinner, there's no need for a Savior. The fact is, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. That is pretty narrow. And he'd already taught that the majority would reject his grace and be lost. So why would I ever assume that everyone was saved unless they told me otherwise? We need to think carefully about what it is we're telling people. We need to think carefully about our motivation. If I'm attempting to draw more people to this church, that's a bad motive. Point people to Jesus. If they come here, that's fine. They're welcome. But that's not my motive. Okay. If I'm attempting to have a bigger following, I have wrong motives. I don't think there's anything wrong with knowing where your flock is. Jesus used that as an example. He says, what shepherd, having a hundred sheep, if he has one of them lost, isn't going to leave the 99 and go find the one that's lost? Okay, he had to know he had a hundred sheep before he could go find the one that was backed off someplace. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's your goal, is just to have a bigger flock, then you got wrong motives. It's a joy to me to see that we got 600 plus, that's 652 this morning, people following our website. Well, they sure aren't here. I'm never going to see them. I'm never going to know them. Most of them are in the Philippines. I, I see every week somebody from the Philippines liking our church. Cool, but who are you? I don't know. God knows. I don't know what's going on over there. I don't understand it. <clears throat> but we need to think about our motives. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that leaders were going to rise up within the flock who were going to choose to lead people away after them, to lead, draw away disciples after themselves. That's what they want. They're not considering the flock. That's from Acts chapter uh, 20, verse 28 through 31. <clears throat> we need to point people to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist did throughout his ministry. We need to maintain the concept that he must increase and I must decrease. People need to see less of me and more of him. Otherwise, the reverse is what's likely to occur. And we end up puffing ourselves up, and when we do that, we dim the cross. We're dimming the cross. We're turning down the spotlight on the cross don't want that to happen. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we know we need you. We know we want to walk with you. We know that the result has to be that you increase and that we decrease. We want to be filled with your Spirit, and the result has to be that we behave the way the Holy Spirit does, focusing on you, not on us. We ask that you'd pour your grace through us to the dying world around us so that you can Save those who believe. We ask that you cleanse our hearts and make us clean channels for your love and for your mercy. In Jesus' name.